Hello, and welcome to The Real, the podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I'm your host, Mark Olson. On today's episode... I'm on the ground in Park City, Utah, at the Sundance Film Festival. I've been checking out a bunch of this year's movies, and I had a chance to catch up with some actors and filmmakers to talk about how great new narratives can be told. And later, I'll wrap things up with some of my LA Times colleagues who joined me to talk about the films of the Sundance Film Festival. But first, I sat down with actor Tessa Thompson, actor Coleman Domingo, and writer-director Justin Simeon to explore different storytelling formats. Here's part of our conversation. There's so many different ways to tell stories now, platforms, methods, ways to go about it. And Coleman, Zola is such a perfect film to sort of like start a conversation like that. The movie's based on a viral Twitter thread. I'm just so curious, when the, when the script came to you, written by Jenica Sabravo and Jeremy O'Harris, what did, you, what did you make of it? What did it seem like when you first read that script? To be very honest, in the very first uh, three pages, I thought, wow, this is fantastic. I never laughed so hard. I thought it was raw. It was honest. It was bold. I saw this, you know, young woman in the center of her story observing all of these horrific things that were about to happen. You're like, oh, my God, this is like, you know, a, a tale of like Alice in Wonderland in some way. But, you know, <laughs> but it's also, you know, it's sized up and it's like and, you know, the wonderful thing is um, Jeremy O'Harris has been com- comparing sort of like, you know, her to be sort of like the Homer of our times and, you know, or Jamaica Kincaid, which is very interesting because they're like she's taken this form, the way she was telling story, the way she told it in what 140 characters each time is outstanding because each one, each phrase holds up with so much uh, visual language, so much intention, very clear action. And so uh, it was, it's, it's outstanding. I think you want to see even more. I don't know, she's at the forefront of doing something like that, but I think there's so many more writers out there who may not even know that that's actually such a talent and gift that they have, that that can transcend uh, just being just from being Twitter. That can actually be a more narrative, like whether for television or film or theater. And now, Tessa, I saw on Twitter that you were at a screening of Zola last night. And uh, what, what, I mean, the movie has this just really special and unique energy. Like, what, what did you make of it? Oh, I thought it was tremendous. I'm really struck. I think we're living in a time in terms of media and content where all of the things that have previously been sort of obstacles in new voices getting their story told told or being sort of broken down entirely and you know obviously with streaming and all these new platforms it feels like the wild west like there's a new frontier so when I first read Zola's tweets when they became viral and then there was this excitement around this possible movie and then knew that it was going to be made I'm also such an enormous fan of Janixa Bravo's I loved her last feature Lemon which was here I think she's such a unique and singular voice in cinema and so I was really excited to see this film and I hope that audiences, first of all, if you didn't know that it was based on a Twitter thread and you went in just seeing the film, I think you would understand that it's a story that's really important to be told, that, like Coleman says, is really honest and nuanced. And also just the film is so incredibly styly. It just looks good. It has a vibe. It feels so of its time, but also timeless in a way that I think really great films are. And also so exciting that it feels like by hook or by crook, we can decide that we're just going to tell our stories and no one can say what deserves to be in a screen, what deserves to be projected, what deserves to exist in media. And I love that. I love that now, you know, writers can feel sort of liberated to get onto any 
platform any medium that they choose to and say like I have something to say I got a story to tell and it can be told I think it's genius Justin you've been working recently in television feature film and you have your own podcast even how do you decide where an idea goes is it ever a challenge for you to like figure out among these platforms that you have available to you like what the best place for an idea is I mean it's not it's hard but it's like who will take it like who wants it who wants to give me some money to be black and weird in this new uh, venue? Uh, I mean, honestly, but the thing is, is that I, I was put on this earth to tell stories. I love stories. And, you know, I grew up wanting to be a filmmaker, reading comic books, but I couldn't afford a camera. So I would make little things on my tape recorder and do like audio stories. And then I had this stupid little computer program called X-Men Cartoon Maker. I'm a nerd also. Welcome to me. All of the formats of storytelling kind of scratch the itch for me. And one of the things that like, I think is profound about being a storyteller is that so much of our lives and who we are is formed by story. Money is a story. Democracy is a story. You know, racism is a story. And to be able to contribute to the stories that go out into the fabric of culture that sort of shape who we are and shape who's coming next and how they'll think about things, I think it's a profound responsibility. I think it's important to interrogate the kinds of stories that we're conditioned to expect all the time, which is what I love what you guys are saying, uh, particularly about Zola. I talk about with Dear White People when doing the TV show is there are other story forms to explore. There is the crisis play, which is an African story form where you sort of have a member of uh, everyone in the tribe present in the story and a, a, a danger shows up and a conflict shows up and then the play ends which we would find very unsettling here but like it that's a story form that is designed to send the audience out into the world back into their communities to figure out how to solve the problem and I just think it's fun that like new people are getting keys to the vehicles to, to create stories because you know I love me uh, a hero's journey okay love me a three-act structure but there are other ways to sort of to say things and I think the more people we give access to film and TV the more kinds of ways we're gonna hear about ourselves I think that's very exciting all the the projects that we're talking about do have an energy about today even Sylvie's Love which is a, a period piece I think still has a lot to tell us about what's happening for us now is that something you're all thinking about? I mean, a, a movie like Bad Hair in particular, are you thinking a lot about what that has to say to this moment as you're making the movie? I mean, absolutely. You know, Bad Hair, which takes place in 1989, you know, kind of takes place in this kind of cinematic sort of Brian De Palma-y dream world, but it's about us, you know? And it's about the way the stories that we're told and the stories that we inherit sort of inform the way we think in ways we don't even realize. There's a, a sort of thread about African folklore in, in the movie, uh, and that's important to me because when I sort of discovered all of these amazing stories that my actual ancestors were telling themselves, you know, to get through slavery and, and to get through the aftermath of slavery, and I'm discovering like the flying African story and, and and, and the story about witches leaving their skin at night, and, and, and we made up one for the movie called The Mars Hair Girl Story, I'm realizing there's all this intuitive wisdom that would inform the way I go through America that I don't get from Hansel and Gretel or the stuff that I'm taught in school. In that same way, Bad Hair is really pulling from uh, different kinds of story thread, whether it's the music we listen to, to whether it's the actual you know playing with form of, of what a psycho thriller can be. How a story affects us and how we receive story and tell stories to each other is always on the forefront of my work and, and how I think. And let me piggyback on that. It's, it's very interesting that the four of us are sitting up here, a fellow here, that we're all 
I've become a producer as well and I have my own production company, that we realize that it's not enough to just want to have the idea and uh, to tell the story and tell a story that may not get the, the, the noise that it could. But it's important for us to become producers as well and make sure the work is out there. I think we all start to realize that as artists as well. It's like, you know, I, I've, you know I've been in the theater for, starting the theater for like 30 years and I would go to auditions when I was a young actor and I would audition for roles like a guy named Cool Whip Tyrell. And so, and I'm like, I grew up in the inner city and I never came across a Cool Whip Tyrell. So I thought I need to write stories from um, you know, another perspective and believe that those stories have validity. And the, the inner city actually looked like me. And we actually, you know, we sat around a table at six o'clock and had dinner like everybody else and you know, kids went to college. But, the, and, but and we were struggling with other things that other people were. And it may seem like smaller stories. It may not seem as sexy because it's not what people may think of as the inner city. But it's our <laughs> responsibility to tell those other stories and other narratives. And the only way to do it and do it even, even stronger is to become producers as well. Hardly anything sounds as sexy as Cool Whoop Tyrell. Like, that's the person Especially I want to meet. in my deep voice. Right? I, would, I would travel anywhere to meet Cool Whoop Tyrell. <laughs> You're into that? Yes, I'm into that. I've been, I've been thinking a lot about not just the, the kind of stories that we tell, but how the stories make us feel. I think we're in a time where, you know, and I work a lot in sci-fi and speculative fiction, which I love, but it's pretty dystopian, you know? Because we're grappling with ideas of technology and, and immortality and what it means to be alive now. What I liked about a film like Sylvie's Love was the idea to make a film that's sort of in the style of these, you know, a throwback film that's in the style of these sort of epic love stories. Our film is set in 1957 and 1962, respectively. And the truth is, if you look at the sort of, you know, iconography of cinema... I can't even think of stories in which there are black people at the center of those narratives that get just to be fly and in love and look beautiful and where we get to center our joy and our elegance. You know, we're just sort of all but erased from that era of, of filmmaking. So to make a film in the style of films that were made then is sort of like rewriting film history in a way and I love that idea and also that you could make a film that basically just asks for audience members to sit for just under two hours and just be swept away and to leave the theater feeling good and being reminded of what it's like to fall in love and and make you know the choices that you make both bad and good when you're swept away by that feeling and as much as I love the idea of, of grappling with some of these tougher questions of of looking at how horrific we can be as humans it's really nice to remember how lovely we can be and it can be so i've been thinking a lot about the implications of the of the kind of content that i make for example if you make a piece that's set in the future do you then have the responsibility to create what the future ought to look like i think about that if i made a film set we used to talk about this all the time because we used to be like why aren't there more black people in the future? And why aren't there more black people in space? You know what I mean? They don't make it to space. They don't make it to, they space. Never make it to space. Or they don't make it out of space. But yeah, so, so I think about the future and I'm like, if I made a film that was set even, you know, a skosh in the future, I don't know what a skosh is, like 25 years or something, would I want there to be single-use plastic? Would I want there to be guns? Do I have the responsibility not to show the world just as it is, but as it should be? I don't know. 
Justin, can you talk about that a little bit? Do you think at all about the version of the world that you present in your movies, whether you want to be presenting the world as it is or as you might like to, it to be? I think that there's room for all of it. You know, it's like I, I do a television show that's sort of point, pinpointing all of the painful, secret, racist experiences that we're enduring but can't feel like we talk about. But then I go home and I totally watch The Housewives and like watch, <laughs> you know, The Circle on Netflix and other things that I'm embarrassed to say. Because I think it's a, I think it's a mix of both. I, I think for me, the power you know, one of the things I, I love about a movie is when it sends me with out into the lobby with just something stuck in my throat that I, I just can't figure out oh, something about that movie just, you know, and I have to talk it out and I have to work it out at home. Like, I, I like art that sort of stays with me. So I think it's, you know, I think it's a mix of both. I think it depends on what you're trying to say and what, what you're trying to give to your audience at that time. I think they're both valid. Tessa, as you've been moving forward in your career, I mean, yes, you're starring in these sort of big budget sci-fi films, as you were mentioning, but you're also making time to act in and, and produce movies like Sylvie's Love or Little Woods that you had here, or the movie Passing that's coming out later this year. Was there a moment when you realized that that was something you could do? No, maybe now that you're telling me. <laughs> it occurs to me that that's true. No, I don't think I'm really thinking about it. And mm -hmm. I don't, I, I'm not sure that I place these projects, I don't place them in different Places. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's something distinct about working. It's just work, yeah. There's something distinct about working in independent cinema just because of the parameters. Like, you have less time, you have less money, there's less people, you know? Uh, there's something taxing about working in big movies sometimes because you're doing silly things in front of a green screen and someone's eating a sandwich, you know? And you have to try to forget that they're there or something. But uh, so, so, so the yeah, the challenges are slightly different. But for me, it's similar in the sense that you're just trying to tell a story. And and I think what's been so neat recently is, I mean, all of the for the most part, all of the sort of bigger sort of tentpole movies that I've been making have been with independent filmmakers. I made Creed with Ryan Coogler. Um, I made. Um, Thor Ragnarok with Taika Waititi. So, uh, you know, I've been really lucky to work with filmmakers that are sort of working in the same way, just with more money. And that's fun to watch someone, you know, who has really big ideas and has had to fit it in 23 days now have five months to, to execute big ideas and to do it in a different way. But to me, it's sort of all stories. And, you know, my favorite filmmakers to work with are the ones that are irreverent, that in, you know, regardless of what sort of box they're put in, they're trying to say something and disrupt. Those are the people that I seem to be gravitating towards constantly, like Justin Simeon. And so I feel lucky to get to do that in, in big movies, but I always feel like it's, it feels like home to get to work with a small group of people that you trust, to get to feel like you're in the trenches together. It's very easy as an actor to feel like a cog in something moving you can be puppeteered a little bit, you know, and sometimes you want to be like, I'm not a puppet, I'm a real boy. You know, so I feel like when you work in independent cinema, you sometimes have a bit more agency because everyone's just trying to get it made by hook or by crook. And there's a democratized spirit of ideas, like the best idea wins. There's not this hierarchy. I really dislike hierarchy. So I feel comfy in that. But I, but I, you know, I think the best work environments are always that way, whether you have a million dollars or you have $150 million. One thing I enjoy so much about you in some of these bigger movies, I'm thinking specifically of Thor Ragnarok, you seem to bring so much of yourself. Like you're sort of coloring outside the lines a little bit of what some of those characters maybe could be. Do you feel in this, that you're bringing a lot of yourself to those bigger projects too? 
Uh, yes, probably. Uh, mostly because I don't know that I feel like I could execute the thing that would be expected of me. For example, I think in sort of big budget tentpole movies, there's this expectation of sort of the female characters in it to stand in certain ways, you know, and there's those like shots, which I think are going away a bit, but they're like up the body shots, you know, and that kind of stuff. And there's people that probably can do that really well. And I just feel goofy. So <laughs> I don't know how else, you know, I, I'm just sort of approaching it the way that I, that I see it. And I feel lucky that I've gotten to work with people that also want to sort of buck convention, want to create sort of new iconography about what particularly women look like inside of those narratives. In that way, I feel like I've, I've been tasked to bring more of myself because we're trying to find something that feels singular and different than what we've seen before. Coleman, you mentioned earlier, I mean, you, you move so easily between stage work and television work and film work. As an actor, how different do those things all feel? Are you looking for different experiences when you are working in those different modes? Or are you looking for some continuity there? I don't think I'm looking for continuity. I think I'm going for what really moves me. I think it makes sense to me as I'm um, really examining the work that I'm really interested in, and even as a producer as well. It's like, you know, I'm really interested in really interesting uh, depictions of human life, and that's the clearest way I can just say it. So it makes sense to me that, like, I'll bounce from theater and in all, all parts. You know, I, I write theater, I write musicals, I act, I direct, and same with television and with film as well. And I think it's just in, to be malleable. I just want the story told. It, for me, it doesn't matter which side I'm on. I think at some point I have a point of view that's stronger and outweighs uh, the other. Also, when people cast me or have me in the room, they usually know they want somebody with a big mouth. I, I'm a dramaturg. I'm, I'm not only, you don't just get an actor. I'm just going to try to work out the ideas and things that I'm not even a part of in the script, in the room. How does the room feel? How do we take care of each other? How do we take care of craft services? How do we take care of, you know, how are the PAs treated and the transpo and all that stuff? No, I've, but I think I've always, I mean, that's me, again, my, my roots are in the theater and I think it's about being a part of the whole. And so I think that, you know, which is why I move in, you know, in the audio space as well. I think that's important as well. It's another uh, platform that I'm very interested in. So I love just being a part of great storytelling. So um, anything that's good, I want to be a part of and I want to be in that room. And also, I want my voice to be in the room as well. And I want my voice to also take care of other voices. Like it's very important for me to make sure that women are in, in the room and, and gay people in the room and disabled are in the room that, because that's the way we create really good art, actually. It's not even a question. That's just, it's just pretty simple, actually. It's a simple formula, you know? Justin, is it a challenge for you at all to stay open to these new forms? Like the idea of like starting your own podcast at a moment when you are quite busy, you know, creating a television show. Like, is it difficult for you to stay open to these new th ideas and new forms as they come along? I mean, yeah, but life is difficult. I mean, difficult is sort of a given, I think. Uh, I, f I find it necessary, you know, the, the kind of things, I w the kind of stories I want to tell, the kind of characters I want to bring to the screen. I mean, you know, I have this thing in me where it's like if I'm not supposed to do something, like I just, I feel so compelled to do it. And, and knowing that about myself, uh, it means that I, I have to sort of not only be open to, but sort of be looking for the new way to tell a story, the new platform, the new kind of form it could take. One of the things that's been so interesting about doing Dear White People as a TV show is like, you know, each season getting to reinvent what the show even is and like what a show is supposed to be on something like Netflix, which has only been around for so long. And what are those expectations of a thing that you watch in fits and starts, you know, and, and sort of playing with that form. I mean, that's kind of, that's one of the things that drives me. It's necessary because I don't think 
that, you know, before there was a Netflix, I would have been able to do a Dear White People as a TV show. And likewise, you know, all of these new platforms, whether they're streaming or whether we're talking about Audible, I think that they are like opportunities, but they're necessary for people who are trying to tell stories out literally outside of the actual box. Uh, It's the only way a lot of us can even get in there. And it doesn't stop getting difficult either. I wanted to just piggyback on that. I feel like now I'm in the place where I've been like selling some television series and things like that. And it's always, you got to get down to the wire of like, you know, they're looking at, you know, numbers and things like that and make it, they're looking at something that's happened before. And I always believe that, well, the best stuff is the shit you didn't see before and then it hit. And then is, isn't that the formula? Like there wasn't a madman before. So don't try to get another madman. Let's go for a really good story and then trust that. And then trust that that will find its audiences. That's, I think... That's what I believe. But if you, a lot of times they're like, well, based on our numbers, this may not work. Instead of you like, hmm, but you really like the story. So I'm challenged with that. So that's, I think, just laying out that there's some challenges that I'm having, even as a producer, and as I'm going around shopping series and films and things like that, where you hear it's not only about, you know, the, the creative content. It's also like, yeah, this is a film that has nine pretty much unknown African-American teenage boys. Um, yeah, I don't have room for Brad Pitt. Because, you know, what, what will bring in the numbers, you know, but you're like, but you love the story and you're really in there with it, but you can't see the, how it's going to end up. You can't, you can't predict that it's going to make your, you're going to make your money back. So you got to start to find these people who, who are willing to lose money and lose their shirt. Yeah, it's so true. I remember when Boots Riley was trying to make our film Sorry to Bother You and he met with so many producers who said they really loved the idea. They loved the script. They love everything, but they had never, they didn't understand how a movie like that could exist. They had never seen it. And and I just thought, well, had they never seen a Michelle Gondry film or had they never seen so many films in the tradition of that that are magical realism? I think what they meant, what they didn't say, is they had never seen a film like that with a cast that was all of color. What they mean to say is never what they say. Yeah. But still, you know, we try. Maybe as a way to, to head towards wrapping this up, Coleman, I, I'm so taken by hearing you talk about the fact that you've been doing this for a while and that you're still so energized by it to kind of get back to our idea of storytelling. How do you feel about this as a moment for storytelling? Are you, are you excited by the fact that there's all these different platforms, different ways for people to be telling stories now? I'm very excited because I think, again, we're finding more u- unique and original voices. And also, like you're saying, finding unique and original actors and directors and designers as well. Like people who are willing to, they have no preconceived notions on the way things should be. And you, you're making me think about like working with Ava, for, which was basically her second film. And just in terms of how she was, there was a rawness to it. Not to say she wasn't polished, but she was just, you know, write this monologue. Will you say this monologue tomorrow? And things like that. And so, oh, yeah, I'll learn that. We'll figure that out together. But and then just saying, go. Go with what, what's there as well. That's exciting. And uh, so it's, I'm, I'm always very excited about, you know, just like what's new, what's next. I, I seem to be working with a lot of young casts, you know. It's always, I'm like, I'm, I feel like I'm giving dad vibes these days, but I'm always like, you know, it's Coleman Domingo with the cast of Zola or with Assassination Nation or in Euphoria. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm that dude because I, I want to be around that raw energy. You know, people, you know, jumping out on a ledge like, with, like Sam Levinson and just like, you know, believing we're going to fly with some new, new creative thinking, new camera angles, new, new scripts, work that we've never seen before. That's exciting. And so I hope that we all take that energy with us out into the world. Thank you, everyone, for being here today. And thank you to our fantastic guests. And now, it's time for Glenn Whip's Awards Minute. Quick break. 
from all the Sundance talk because final Oscar voting is underway and we're at the end game point in the awards season where everyone has either accepted their fate and they've tucked away their speeches or they're in just a blind rage wondering how in the hell that other movie, that lesser movie is going to win all the Oscars when my movie isn't. Maybe that's not so much the nominees. Maybe it's more film Twitter and people who cover the award season like myself because we take things very personally when our favorite movie doesn't win the Oscar. And we saw that last year. A lot of great things happened at the Oscars last year. But everyone just wanted to gripe about Green Book. Kind of probably what happens again this year. A lot of great awards. Who doesn't want to see Brad Pitt do another stand-up set when he uh, wins the Supporting Actor Oscar? I think everyone's pretty cool with Joaquin Phoenix finally winning an Oscar. But 1917? Ah, boring choice. Just won the Director's Guild Award on top of winning the Producer's Guild Award. And it looks like an overwhelming favorite to win Best Picture. So it's like, ah... Oscars being Oscars, and the Oscars will always be the Oscars. My advice right now, when you're watching a week from Sunday, just take in the good with the bad and and take it all in with a glass half full. Enjoy Brad Pitt winning his first Oscar. Enjoy Brad Pitt giving probably another great, funny acceptance speech. Enjoy Laura Dern. There's going to be a lot to enjoy. So put away your, your axe to grind right now about 1917. Focus on the good things. That's all we can do. Thank you, Glenn. And now back here at the LA Times house in Park City, I'm joined by my colleagues Justin Chang, Kenneth Turan, Amy Kaufman, and Jen Yamato. Thanks, everybody, for being here. So let's let's wrap up the festival so far. I mean, we're about partway through. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, and there have been some big sales that have been announced in the past few days. But Kenny, I think there's still maybe a sentiment that this is like sort of a slow or soft festival this year. How do you, How do you feel about that? I think it's been okay. You know, I mean, I think that, that in some ways festivals tend to be alike mostly. There's a great drive to have them be different and it's just more, it's just less. But I think mostly they're about the same. There seem to be less sales, but from what I've been reading in the paper, it's partly because a lot of stuff came in here pre-sold. So there wasn't that much available for buyers to snap up. And Justin, how are you feeling about the festival so far? Pretty good, Mark. Um, you know, it started off a bit slow, perhaps, but maybe every Sundance or most Sundances feel that way. And then it finally shifts into gear. And uh, I've seen a lot of really good movies here. And um, and it's not, I don't know wh- where we are at the halfway point or not yet, but uh, I'm here for a while and look forward to seeing more. And Amy, I think just last year where we had the documentary about Michael Jackson, that really was a real talking point for the entire festival. This year we have... On the Record, which is a a movie, a documentary you've been doing a lot of reporting on. Can you tell us a little about what that movie's about? Yeah, that is a documentary from Amy Ziering and Kirby Dick. They are two filmmakers who have uh, made a couple of films about sexual abuse over recent years. And when the Me Too movement happened, they started recording a ton of footage and sort of uh, remained open to where that would take them. And ultimately what it came out with was this film we have at Sundance called On the Record, which follows... A handful of women of color, particularly one named Drew Dixon, who started her career at uh, Def Jam, where Russell Simmons uh, was the co-founder. 
And basically, she is one of many women who alleged that she was sexually uh, assaulted by Russell Simmons. And that is reporting that has been out there for the last couple of years. Actually, a lot of it was broken by the Los Angeles Times. But what is getting a lot of attention with the documentary is that coming into it, Oprah Winfrey was one of the executive producers and the film was going to be released on Apple TV post-festival. And then just like a couple of weeks before Sundance, Oprah pulled her name from the movie because she said she um, felt it wasn't ready. She wanted to look into some inconsistencies she had heard about. And so Oprah's removal from the project has really kind of cast a shadow over the movie until it premiered here and it got multiple standing ovations. I think a lot of the people in the audience were questioning, like, what's the problem with this movie? We find it very moving. I think that really did turn out to be one of the most powerful events of the festival so far was that premiere screening. And I think it it showed in some ways what a Sundance premiere was all about, that it was, you know, the subjects of the documentary were there, the filmmakers were there. It felt like a very powerful and emotional event there in that room. Totally. I actually had seen the movie before the festival and, you know, watched it on a link, which is something that most of us do a lot and at our homes on TV. And like, honestly, I would prefer to do that a lot of times than go to a screening room. And yet when I saw it here in the room with all the people and the subjects from the film, I had a completely different reaction. Like I was way more emotional. The Q&A was incredible. Um, There was a party afterwards where like that vibe continued and everyone was talking about how powerful the movie was. And um, it was just a reminder of sort of what festivals can do for movies. And also on the flip side, maybe why so many movies that get bought here in a flurry of attention don't end up panning out because it's hard to replicate that that feeling. Jen, have there been any screenings you've been to that have had that big Sundance moment, that kind of emotional feeling in the room? Well, I'm so glad you asked because yes, the answer is yes. A film called The 40-Year-Old Version, written and directed by and starring Radha Blank. It's a black and white, very serial comic, very funny New York story about a woman approaching 40 who's totally questioning her choices. She's a struggling playwright who was once heralded as like, you know, the rising star, the next rising star, for whom life has not quite panned out that way. And Rada Blank is such a star. She is in almost every frame of this film. She is a force. She is somebody whose voice, you you see this movie and you want to see everything she's going to put out after this moment in time. And so that screening was really special because you felt it in the whole room. And I think a lot of people will leave Sundance now knowing who she is and really excited about her. Justin, were you there for that screening? Have you seen 40-Year-Old Version? I was. And it's definitely one of my favorites in the dramatic competition. It's, I think it's one of the longer films in the competition. It's uh, 129 minutes or so, and which is not even that long, but considered long for the kind of 90-minute Sundance model that we usually get. But I feel like it really earns that. It's a very emotionally generous movie. And so it's very, very funny and and thoughtful. Sometimes I feel like the marker of progress will be when we don't draw attention to how many great or interesting films directed by women and about women there are. Sundance is certainly, this is nothing new for Sundance. Sundance has been doing this, you know, certainly much better than other parts of the industry. But I just kept getting struck by just how many and just how good so many of them are, whether it's Josephine Decker's film, Shirley, about uh, starring Elizabeth Moss as the writer Shirley Jackson, which is just looks like a traditional literary biographical drama in some ways, but is so just textured and atmospheric. Um, and Moss and Michael Stuhlbarg are just so great. Movies like Promising Young Woman, Emerald Fennell's uh, debut feature. She's a showrunner on Killing Eve, a movie I was not expecting to like, really, and 
was pleasantly surprised by. And that's just a few. You bring up, I think, a good point, and it's something I think a lot of people have been talking about, is the fact that I think the, the first weekend of Sundance, a lot of people said that they were only seeing films directed by women. The recent conversations around award nominations really have sort of spurred that conversation back into the limelight. And so to see this year's Sundance Film Festival so strongly, so many films from from strong female filmmakers. Amy, was that something that you noticed or you were have been surprised by this year at Sundance? Well, as we're sitting here, I just saw a press release that Heidi Ewing's film, I Carry You With Me, was acquired by um, Sony Pictures Classics. And honestly, that was a surprise to me because it's sort of a smaller, more intimate movie about two young men who come to America from Mexico and have trouble getting into the country and keeping their relationship going. And Heidi's background is in documentary, as is another filmmaker here, Liz Garbus, who has a movie called Lost Girls, which is coming out on Netflix this year. And that's sort of an interesting trajectory that we've been following because if you look at the Oscar race this year, there are a handful of female filmmakers in the documentary category and none in the best director category. And so Sundance is an interesting place to see how those female filmmakers get their first shot and what happens to them afterwards. Like Liz was pointing out that when she came here with her first documentary she worked on, the same year Todd Phillips won a prize, that she won a prize, and like their careers have followed very different paths. So I hope that the debut filmmakers here this year have a different experience. I want to agree 100%. I would agree more than 100% if there was more than 100% (laughs) possible mathematically to agree. it speaks to kind of the way the whole Hollywood system has kind of been skewered and perverted or whatever towards superhero movies as the ultimate good and the ultimate thing everyone should look at and everyone should want to make and every studio should want a corner. And one of the things I'm happy about at this Sundance is that there are several, you know, not Hollywood films, but kind of the independent version of Hollywood films, adult dramas, well-directed with good casts and interesting stories. And you know, people think of Sundance as this cutting-edge place, but really there's home for these kind of films as well, and I'm happy to see them here. Worth is one I thought of, uh, starring uh, Michael Keaton, Stanley Tucci, a story of the man who had to put a actual number on the worth of the lives of the people who died in 9-11 to pay the survivors, and the complications involved in that. Really a wonderful film. Uh, there's a film called The Father, starring Anthony Hopkins, which is a very strong film, kind of about, uh, he plays a man in his 80s, kind of headed into dementia. It's a strong film, and it's, you know, we think we know what Anthony Hopkins can do, and he always, the great actors always go past what we think they can do, and he does that and that. I mean, I could list others as well, but it's just nice that they find a home here too. We need to just pause here to discuss Minari. Please, please explain what it is, Justin. Minari is uh, Lee Isaac Chung's film, semi-autobiographical drama uh, about uh, a Korean-American family that moves from California to Arkansas and encounters a lot of difficulties. I'm not going to say anything more because the director, Isaac, is a friend of mine. Beyond Justin, I think it's one of the best movies at the festival. People are agreeing, obviously, clearly because of young Alan Kim, who is... A child, I think, was he found in a Korean daycare, I believe they said in the Q&A? He has been walking around Sundance wearing cowboy get-ups, different bandanas, different cowboy hats, different cowboy boots, and then this little vest that looks like it was from like a Toy Story Halloween costume. We're obsessed with him, and the world will be obsessed with him. He's sort of like Brooklyn from the Florida Project. 
I loved Kenny and I both saw yesterday uh, Time, this beautiful documentary in in the competition that I was just kind of blown away by. Um, compresses about a couple decades uh, in the life of an African American family. Uh, the father is incarcerated, and so it's about his absence. It's under ninety minutes, and it compresses twenty years. And there's something very poignant about just the experience that it takes you on, even despite of a great economy of means. With the movies that play here at Sundance, that get bought here at Sundance, that do kind of make their way out into the world, there are movies that you see here now where you think, like, that's a really nice film. No one's going to see that. What happens with those, especially with documentaries in this day and age, is that streamers buy them. Because there's a kind of film that people will gladly watch at home that they will not go out for. This may be unfortunate, but it's the reality we live in. And documentaries are very popular on streaming services. So, I mean, they, they, they come out at Sundance. People buy them and people are very happy at home. It's just the theatrical market for it is not what it used to be. Can we talk about something more awesome, which is the bus? What like had hype and was like, wah, wah. This is a movie I have not seen and haven't really read anything in depth. I've just heard the chatter and I'm trying to ignore it. But Wendy, Ben Zeitlin's film, withholding judgment until I see it. And I want to bring it up almost not, certainly not to rag on it. But it's one of three movies that I noticed in the premiere section, I believe. Miranda July's Kajillionaire, Sean Durkin's The Nest, Ben Zeitlin's Wendy. These are all filmmakers who I think all of them got their start at Sundance in some way. And uh, Miranda July with Me and You and Everyone We Know, Sean Durkin with Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, uh, Ben Zeiland, of course, with Beasts of the Southern Wild, which is one of the great success stories of Sundance of the past decade. Uh, he got an Oscar nomination for Best Director out of that movie. And it's interesting that they all have not made features, I think, for the last seven or eight years since their last appearances at Sundance. I believe Miranda July's previous film before this was the feature, although she's done a lot of other work that is outside of movies. I just think it's interesting that they're all this confluence of these three filmmakers coming back with movies that I, I liked Kajillionaire a lot. I liked The Nest much more than most people will. And I, but I do think that everyone would agree that just the commercial prospects, even if these movies were glowingly received, and I don't think any of them were completely across the board received that well, nobody expects that they might be the kind of success that, say, Beasts was. And some of the other movies that haven't gotten a great reception i think also have big movie stars four good days with glenn close and mila kunis like great performances maybe not um an amazing movie the gloria is a movie about gloria steinem which seems like it would have a lot of interest starring julianne moore and alicia vikander um haven't heard a lot about that one so you know star power certainly isn't moving the needle either what we were talking about with film is what's been happening in books for you know generations it's a phenomenon of the midlist novelist people are much more interested in signing up a hot new writer with a hot new first novel than they are the same person's second and third novel this is something you know authors have to live with it's just maybe it's something to do with human nature we want to discover you know the new shining object can we talk about the big price sale of this festival please do palm springs how much was it sold for again <laughs> so the motion picture palm springs was sold for 17.5 million dollars and 69 cents <laughs> which makes it the highest selling you know movie in sundance history beating the previous record by that's 69 cents. And I, I want to sort of turn that into a question, though, which is that a lot of the movies that have sold so far were not necessarily the buzziest titles, the ones that you felt like everybody's talking about. And I feel like Palm Springs is an example of that. It's an Andy Samberg movie. Um, it's kind of a rom-com with a sci-fi twist. It's good. Like, I liked it. Like, Andy Samberg is actually very likable in it. But, sorry. You are a great surprise. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. 
Andy Samberg is likable in it. I have always liked him. However, many others. Is Andy Samberg TBH like the biggest star? You know, like I don't know that an Andy Samberg comedy is going to be a huge box office hit, even though I think it's like a pretty good movie. Well, that's why that that sale number kind of blew me away. Aside from the <laughs> cleverness of the gimmick, $17 million is a lot of money. But I think that also speaks to the fact that the economics of independent film, like we see here at Sundance, have changed so much because of the fact none of us can put a dollar value on what a movie means to a streaming service like Hulu, Amazon, Netflix, Apple+. Plus. We don't know what the value of these movies to those services are. So these numbers become a weird fantasy realm for all of us where we're used to having the hard metric of box office. You know, I think one of the things you see in, in, in purchases is that people want to buy things that they look like something they've sold already, that, the, you know, the track is already laid out and this is a new train coming down. And I think comedies, you know, by known people, uh, streamers seem to know how to deal with those. So I think that I, I, I also feel it was oversold to too high a price, but I think that's what's going on. And with that, we will wrap up this year's Sundance Roundtable. Thank you all, of course, for being here. That's it for this week's show. My panels with the actors and filmmakers took place at Audible's studio setup of the festival called the Audible Speakeasy. My colleagues also taped other panels there as well, and videos of all three are available at latimes.com. Thanks to our producer, Paige Heimson, and our audio engineer, Mike Heflin. Subscribe to The Real on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 